So we're going to talk a little bit today about a story that's found in a couple of different places in the Gospels. We're going to use Mark's account, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. And I kind of put a play on words here that it's not just the widow's might. We want to talk a little bit about the widow's plight. So we're talking about some of the stories. We looked at some in the Old Testament. Now we're looking at a few in the New Testament. And we're taking a deeper dive into the stories to see if there's some additional insights that we can derive from these stories than often are observed. Um, Many times we just kind of read the surface of the story and we don't dive deeper to understand what's really going on. So today we're going to talk about money for a second. Money is one of those topics that people feel uneasy about. And I have used a phrase, and it's this phrase here, that people get funny when you talk about money, okay? I don't know what it is about this particular topic, but I've been in ministry for 35 years. It was true 35 years ago, and it's true today, that people get strange reactions and feelings about this particular topic. Whether we're talking about stewardship, greed, minimum wage, budgets, spending cuts, layoffs, etc., etc. This particular topic is kind of an uneasy topic, not just in church, but in our country and within the political uh, circles as well. Now, it would be absolutely wonderful if we all had an unlimited supply of money and we could do anything that we wanted to. But that's only a small percentage of the population that is in that position where they live in the kind of luxury where money is no object or no expense is too great. Most of us have to pick and choose what we're going to spend our money on. And yet, for today... People here in this room, we are part of the richest people in the world compared to other countries around the world. You know, the world at large struggles financially, and many, many people in different nations live on a subsistence level. On average, especially in third world countries, people make less than $5 a day. And they have to live on that, and they have to feed their family on less than $5 a day. And when we hear those words, there might be a twinge of sorrow or guilt that might come in, but what can we do about it, right? And yet at the same time, in the back of our minds, when we see Jesus making comments like we just observed, that here's this widow who gave her last two cents uh, to the temple treasury, there's a fear. And the fear that often comes in the back of our minds is, is that what God expects of us? After all, when we see Jesus calling his disciples, he tells Peter and James and Andrew and Philip and those individuals by name, he says, drop everything and come follow me. Leave your vocation behind. And for many of the first disciples, they were fishermen. Leave your fishing business behind and come follow me. Now, does God demand that of all of us? Or could I take a step of faith even to do what those original disciples did? I'm not sure. 
I can answer that honestly. So you add to this stories of people who gave out of their poverty rather than out of their riches, and you'll find that there is something inside of us that makes us uneasy. So I want to put you to rest here for a moment. I'm not going to put you on the hot seat. Actually, by the time I'm done with this message, you're going to see that maybe our calling is not so much to give our last two cents, but to observe those who have to because they've been pressured or manipulated into doing so. Okay, keep that in the back of your mind. All right. So this story about a widow come to, comes to the temple, and she is observed by Jesus just sneaking up to the offering jar and placing her last two cents, the last money that she has to live on. Okay, you're still holding those two pennies in your hand, right? So you're in a situation where you don't know where your next cent is coming from. Would you be able to take those last two pennies and drop them in to the offering jar? I just want you to think about that for a moment. Why did this widow feel compelled to give her last two cents to live on to the temple? Well, the context tells us a little bit about that. First, the context about widows, and then the context of the story for a moment. So when you look at the subject of widows in the Bible, they're there very prominently. And there's a selection of scriptures here. I'm not turning, turning to all of them. But I'll, I'll tell you what they say. The subject of widows comes up often in the Bible. And Exodus 22, 21 through 23 says, don't take advantage of the widow. Deuteronomy 10, 16 through 18 says, hey, defend the cause of the widow. And Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7 says, don't oppress the widow. So in the Bible, widows and orphans and immigrants are, considerable, are considered vulnerable groups of people that can be manipulated by other groups of people. So when we look at the story of the widow's might, often this story has been domesticated. And what I mean by that, it has often been used to coerce and control congregations to give more. And often this particular story is used in stewardship campaigns, trying to build up money. And that is often the conventional interpretation of this uh, story. Be like the widow. She gave all that she could give until she could give no more. And yet we have to look at both sides of the story. We have to look at the story from another angle. So James 127 says that pure religion, or we might say good religion, cares for the widow in need and does not take advantage of them. So now the context of the story in Mark chapter 12. So why does Mark place this story about a widow giving her last two cents uh, to the temple treasury between his condemnation of the religious leaders of the day, he says in verse 38, watch out for these religious leaders. They have long flowing robes. They like to be looked at. They like to be esteemed. They like the best places in the synagogue. And then 
it finishes up in chapter 13, actually, about Jesus making a comment about the beauty of the temple and how all these stones are going to come to destruction when Jerusalem is invaded by the Roman army. So couched in between condemning the religious leaders and the destruction of the temple is this story about a widow. The context is corrupt religious leadership. Keep that in the back of your mind. Corrupt religious leadership. So the warning is against perpetuating injustice against the vulnerable in society. So what Jesus is doing with this story, more than trying to get people to give more to church, that's often how it's used, it's actually criticizing the injustice of a system that would put such pressure on the widow that she would actually give her last two cents to the temple treasury because she feels compelled that she has to do that. So the overall context of the Bible is the preferential care that God has for widows was not being translated in the New Testament into community action or public policy that would take care of her in her vulnerability. So widows who lost their husbands and did not have children to take care of them, they would be in a very vulnerable position in society. So you remember, oh gosh, I don't even remember how long ago it was, we looked at the book of Ruth. Remember, we did a study on the book of Ruth. And the story was of a woman named Naomi who lost her husband and her two sons were killed. So all the men in her life were killed and all she had was two daughter-in-laws and she is very vulnerable in society. How is she going to make a living? Where is she going to get her next meal? And so what we find is she changes her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitterness. That her life has become bitter because she is left to herself. She is vulnerable. No one is caring for her. And her social and economic hardship is such that she has no rights to an inheritance. So where is she going to get her next meal? Well, here is this widow. We don't know her name in this story from Jesus. But what we do know is she is an individual that seems to be snookered into giving her last two pennies to the temple treasury. Now these teachers of the law are not carrying out the intent of the law because I just told you about these references, right? That says, look out for the vulnerable in society. No, they would rather have elaborate robes. They would rather have the best seats in the synagogue. In other words, they wanted to be religious celebrities, right? Okay, here we are several thousand years later and you still have that temptation, don't you? You have religious celebrities that is constantly pressuring people to give to them. Primarily, we see this on TV. Televangelists that make all kinds of promises if you will give some type of seed money or faith money to them and so forth. And then we hear stories of those individuals, right? They're buying Lear jets and going on luxury yachts and uh, they buy, they're buying expensive cars and all that type of thing. So, <clears throat> the 
The first thing I think we need to learn from this story is it's not primarily a passage about stewardship. It's not primarily a passage about fundraising. It is not a passage that should be used to guilt people into giving more. And yet that's how it's often used 90% of the time. And what we find is that a church, let's just keep it to church right now, has maybe a big goal. And that big goal is to do an addition or build a new church or expand some space or whatever it might be. And now there is the pressure of where are we going to get the money to do that? And then religious leaders, a lot of times, and within that context of religious leaders, I don't mean just pastors, but elders and deacons and other people that make uh, uh, help guide and lead the church, will say, well, then we have to have people give more. And so what we find is that we will then do a stewardship campaign. And I was involved in one that was very large. It actually put a nice addition on my previous ministry. And there's nothing wrong with that unless guilt, shame, and other things are being used to pressure people to give, especially money they don't have to give, right? They need that money for their own um, care and their housing and their meals and so forth. Now, closely associated with this is a concept called tithing. So in the Old Testament, there's a concept called tithing where uh, as part of the Jewish community, they gave a certain percentage out of their income. Of course, this is, a, is primarily a farming type of community and so forth. Um, and the tithe means a tenth, to give a tenth of your income uh, to the, the work of God. Well, that's tied into their tax system as well. I'm not going to get into the details of tithing. But a lot of times churches will take this idea of tithing and try to bring it into a New Testament context as a means of control. And so all of us, I think, have sat under teachings or have seen situations where legalism is often used to try to pressure people. See, you should be tithing, and if you're not tithing, you don't have enough faith. And how many of, all of us have felt that kind of thing, okay? Now, if you're within the church context for a long period of time, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, all you got to do is turn on TV preachers. And TV preachers do, do this all the time. Pressure people to give, 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 give. And by the time they're done with their spiel, you feel like you need to take a shower. I mean, you feel so sleazy because they, of the guilt and shame. Now, here's the bottom line, because we're going to get back to some things about how to apply this story in our context in a moment. Churches need resources, no doubt about it, okay? The bigger a church gets, the more resources it needs. Now, that's where the pressure comes in. When churches begin to step into mega churches, thousands of people, now the budget is no longer, you know, $100,000 for the year. You know, it's a million, two, three, four million dollars a year. And that's a lot of pressure. And so in efforts to try to raise that type of money, 
I think people step over the line and then they misuse stories like this. So what is a better application of this story than the one that uh, is often used? I think we are not to follow the example of the widow. Okay? I think the widow has been pressured to give her last two cents and the two cents that she gives is an act of faith. Let's give it to her. She steps out in faith, she gives it, but why is the key question. Is it out of faith alone or is it out of religious pressure? Is it out of religious manipulation? And if that's the case, we would be wiser not to follow the example of the widow because maybe she has been coerced. So let me read this couple of verses again. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Now why'd they do that? They like to be seen. They like to be applauded. They like to be looked up to because of the amount of money they're throwing in. And if they're using coinage, people can hear how many coins are being <laughs> dropped into the uh, jar, right? Then he goes on and he says this, But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Now did she do that because she wanted to do it? Or did she do that because she was pressured to do it? Or did she do that because everybody was looking at her after all these people passed by and she felt that she needed to do it to be, uh, give the impression that she has faith and trust in God? So I think, personally, any of those applications could be true. What's the problem here is the corrupt system. The corrupt system where religious people are using the vulnerability of other people to pressure them. Now this isn't the first occasion. Uh, back early in, in Mark, uh, there's another story that Jesus tells about these same religious leaders. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Mark chapter 7, verse 9. And I want you to listen to um, Jesus' condemnation. The same thing of the system here. So in verse 9 of chapter 7, Jesus says, He's talking to the religious leaders. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that's a technical term, Corban, that means that amount has been devoted to God, uh, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. So what was happening was uh, people that knew of other people in need. They had some money in their wallet and then they go, ah, but this, this money here is Corbin. Technical term, I can't give it to you, I can't lend it to you, I can't use it for your needs because I have devoted it to God. Now that's just a way of getting out from under the responsibility of helping other people and loving our neighbor as ourself, right? So it's easy to use religion in many respects to safeguard the things that you want to protect, often uh, nullifying 
the great commandment of loving other people as we love ourselves. So I want to finish this message by talking a little bit about some of the contemporary schemes that are often used, particularly against the elderly. Okay, we could talk about immigrants and orphans some other time. Widows, vulnerable group. So elderly widows, and I'm including widowers here as well, uh, are often snookered into having their money taken from them. So here's a few. The widow or widower scam. So AARP, in a recent article, said this. Five days after her husband's funeral, Janet gets a call. The woman on the line claims to be from the state retirement system, calling about a $50,000 life insurance policy belonging to her husband. But there's an issue. A few late payments mean the system cannot pay out the policy unless Janet comes up with the $4,450 to pay the overdue balance. And then she could get the amount from the life insurance policy. Okay, that's a scam. There are people out there that are looking in the obituaries online or in the paper every day and trying to get enough information to contact the widow or the widower, and they are in a vulnerable situation where their grief is overwhelming, and they don't know. Maybe they think, well, maybe my husband did take out a life insurance policy that I didn't know about, right? And so they often get reeled in uh, to losing money like that. Now, according to the government, um, there are five... Uh, financial scams that targets older adults. Number one is government impersonation. Uh, The scam of getting a phone call pretending to be the IRS, the Social Security, or Medicare. And often it says, well, you have to pay unpaid taxes or you're going to face some type of penalty, arrest, or uh, in the case of immigrants, deportation. Um, And it's all a scam. Okay, it's all fake. Secondly is sweepstakes and lottery scams uh, where you get a call saying you're a winner of a certain amount of money, that type of thing. Um, Third is robocall scams. Uh, This is one that's newer. And uh, a robocall uh, will begin with something like this. Can you hear me? And the older adult says yes. And the scammer records their voice and hangs up and then uses their voice signature uh, to make unapproved uh, charges and payments, okay? Another one is computer text scams. I think all of us have run into this, where there's a pop-up screen that that says something like you have a a virus on your computer, Uh, and in order to uh, get that off of your computer, you have to call this particular number. Are you following what I'm saying? Uh, uh, And that's a scam as well. And then probably the one that is, um, I I think, the scuzziest is the grandparent scam where a scammer calls up and says, Hi, Grandma, do you know who this is? And when that grandparent... Uh, guesses the name of a grandchild, the scammer uh, might sound something like that grandchild. Um, a, a trust has been secured on the phone, 
and that fake grandchild asks for some type of money or urgent financial problem to get them out of it. So all of these type of things are the most common that uh, affect older adults. One more is this, clergy scams. So often uh, people, and how many of you have received an email from Nigeria or something saying this is pastor so-and-so and if you will send money, uh, you can help the poor people here in Ethiopia, that type of thing, right? Most often they're scams, right? If you do want to help people around the world, you've got to go through some type of legitimate organization. Don't trust those type of things that pop up on your uh, email. But the other scuzzy part is televangelism and the faith seed money that's been in operation for years. We'll send you a handkerchief, something like that, that ties to your faith commitment, but you're in need of healing or something uh, by way of financial relief and so forth. And televangelists, more often than not, are just class A crooks. Okay, let me speak the truth to you. And when their situation, an individual situation, gets intense, then they will try anything or they will fall for everything. Okay, so you say, what does all this have to do with me? We, who might be aware of these type of scams, owe it to older people to help them be aware that not only people out in society, but often religious people are using faith, which is very important to people, as a way of bilking them out of money, sometimes out of thousands and thousands of dollars. So if we are aware that those type of things are going on, we're not to be like the widow in the story and, and, and say, yeah, just... Trust God and give your last dollar away. No. We are to say, you give as you feel prompted to give, but only after you've checked your budget to make sure you have enough for your, uh, your food, your clothing, and your shelter, right? We can be of great service to the elderly around us if we just tell them honestly to be careful and not to be overly generous because people have a way of manipulating emotions. Does that make sense to everybody? One of the best things that we can do is help other people, and especially look out for our parents and grandparents that might be getting older and making bad judgments along the way. So the widow, I think, is an illustration of religious abuse, to summarize. And in the eyes of these religious leaders, her life is not worth her last two cents. Because if it was... They would not demand her to give her last two cents. Jesus is condemning profit over people schemers. Jesus always puts people over profit. And so we need to be careful. And at times what we need to do is remember that if there's any type of religious system or any type of faith scam, let alone societal scams, that demands people to give to the point of vulnerability, all types of red flags should go up, okay? So we just need to be careful of that type of thing. Um, James, remember, uh, says that good religion 
watches out for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And um, what we find is that there's a lot of bad religion out there. Bad religion that's heavy in ritual and doctrine, but apathetic toward need. So, I guess the best thing that we can do is understand Mark's mosaic, the way he's using this story, is Jesus is uneasy about rituals that forces people into poverty. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So he's very uneasy about that. He always puts other people first. Jesus is condemning profit over people, uh, the schemers and the systems both that perpetuate those type of things. Would you stand with me, please, as we close today? Probably when we come to stories like this, the best thing that we can do is allow it to create a discomfort within us. So here's maybe a benediction that is apropos to the application of this story. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers and half-truths so that you may live deeper into the truth. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, especially older people who are vulnerable, so that you may work for righteousness. So I think it's a good application. Keep your eyes open. Keep your spirit open. And when God prompts you, help those who often are unable to help themselves. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for this powerful little story. Help us to understand what Jesus is doing in this setting where Mark takes this account and places it between the corruption of the religion of the day. And we need to remember, Lord, even another story where Jesus often overturned the tables of injustice. We know, Father, it cost him his own life because the religious people prompted him to be arrested and to be executed. So help us to realize there's some type of cost involved in standing for those who cannot stand for themselves. Help us to have the faith and the courage to be able to do that which will be of help to those who need it the most. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming today. See you soon.